Listeners, we would like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Nick, Justin, Matt, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Alex, Rebecca, Sam, and Annalise. Thank you for your money. It is definitely a bit of cheer in the end of this year. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Somebody called Grandmaster Flash. (laughs) We've got a new new rapper on the scene. (laughs) (laughs) It happened and I was like, I'm going to roll with it. It's Dr. Susie, whatever. You're like you're like those times in, in Whose Lines Anyway where they make Colin Mockery rap with Wayne Brady. That's a that is correct. Oh <laughs> anyway, if you've got five dollars or more a month to spare and would like to help us do fun stuff like make some merch. <laughs> help Joe drop her sweet rap album next year. <laughs> I produce my first rap album. <laughs> You know, you know what might be in the top like one percent of greatest Bob's Burgers episodes of all time. Which one is is the That's Hip Hop episode? Yeah, where <laughs> where it's simultaneously um, a, a a stroke of like pure genius and also like the most horrible thing to sit through ever as a as a human being. Like you know, that's hip hop, and Bob's like, okay. <laughs> Right. It's just two very white people (laughs) teaching people about hip hop. Yeah. And the fact that, like, the only person in the room that's like, maybe this isn't okay is Bob. Meanwhile, Teddy's like, no, Bob, you gotta go along with it. (laughs) No, Bob. It's Bobby Burger. <laughs> Daddy, you think my last name is Burger? Yeah. <laughs> my, one, that's one of my favorite jokes when rich people are talking. And it's like, I'm with the Belchers. And Tammy's mom is like, Tammy, don't say that. And Louise is like, but it's our name. And her mom is like, still, still, don't say it. Or Mr. Fisher is like, hello, Burgers. <laughs> God, what a great show. Start a campaign to have Joe write an episode of Bob's Burgers. Bob tackles religion outside of aquaticism. Yes. Oh, that'd be so good. Anyway, if you would like to help us do any of these things, you can join our supporters over on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP. You also get access to a patron-only podcast feed, which includes bonus content, and the Patreon-only podcast that Ian and I record, which is called Pillow Talk. Uh, this past week, we talked about uh, how you would battle an immortal snail. So that was a fun oh, one. How would you battle one? Oh, actually, this is going to come out on New Year. Don't give it away. Don't give it away. This It's an internet thing. There's this guy on Reddit who has like this whole big plan about it. But the setup is that like at the moment that you accept a million dollars, you become immortal. The snail becomes immortal. And the immortal snail can kill you with a touch. And it's hyper intelligent. And the only thing that it wants to do is come and kill you. So you have to figure out how to escape the snail. Like, and it knows exactly where you are. It's like a homing snail. And I was like, get a boat. But apparently there is like these big complicated things involving like titanium spheres and space travel. And I just like don't need to survive that hard. Like I will just use my million dollars until the snail gets me. And uh, I'll just be up high somewhere for it'll take it some time. Or I'll like catch the snail, you know, like. Oh, yeah, it's not a bad plan. That's not a bad plan. Yeah. No, 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 I I can I can agree to that. I can dig that. It's basically my zombie apocalypse strategy is get on a boat because the zombies probably aren't going to be able to swim really well or get up somewhere high because zombies really can't climb well. That's true. Zombies are also not real, which is another really uh, important component to how I will defeat the zombies. 
That's fair. Is yeah. I will be like, this is absurd, and I reject <laughs> it. <laughs> just go like full Camus, like I love. Yeah, it. I'll stare at the zombies, and I'm like, you aren't real. This can't possibly be real. <laughs> That's solid. That's solid. If you are not in a position to support us financially, there are still ways that you can help us out. You can subscribe to us on the podcasting app of your choice, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, share us on the platform of your choice, or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Facebook. Damn it. Or just keep listening, because that's good, too. That's right. And now, on to the Facebook. <laughs> One, two, five, nine! Robert Breeze servant leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life and set-apart ministry. Each week, we draw on our experiences and challenges as current and former pastors to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Listeners, this week on the podcast, we have Rabbi Mike Harvey back with us to talk holidays and also to talk theology and a lot of exciting things. We also have Ian here with us to be a guest host uh, Ethan is off doing a funeral today, so send latent prayers to him and his congregation. That's uh, It's always hard to lose somebody in the holiday season, so keep those people in, in your minds. But Rabbi Mike, can you reintroduce yourself for our listeners who might not have caught you when you were around last year? Absolutely. Thank you so much. I love being on your show slash podcast, whatever it is. I think it's a show. Um so my name is Rabbi Mike Harvey, and um, I'm a reform rabbi, a graduate of Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. Um, I served congregations for five years, um, and now I serve as a resident chaplain at IU Health, yeah. um, working in the, um, the ICUs um, and providing pastoral and spiritual care to those who need it in the IU Health system. Um, I am uh, and have always been Spirited in interfaith work, always been on interfaith panels, um, directors of interfaith groups, and um, that has led me to my other activities, um, such as the upcoming publication of my book, which is called Let's Talk, A Rabbi Speaks to Christians, and that's coming out July 2022 with Fortress Press. Nice. Um, And so that's moving along. Um, I'm also the co-host of a podcast um, called A Priest and a Rabbi Walk into a Bar, where myself, Rabbi Mike, and my friend, the Episcopal Priest, sit down at local breweries, have a beer, and talk theology, very similar to um, what you do. But of course, we involve beer because, you know, we love beer. So um, in the meantime, um, I love to teach and, um, you know, continue to provide um, educational moments and interaction and positive dialogue with my Christian friends. And so that's why I'm just always, always thrilled to have interactions like this. Yeah, we're so excited to have you on. I am going to derail our initial plan right from the get-go. <laughs> How is working as a chaplain? How is that going in this season? You know, my residency began in August and um, I was assigned directly to the medical ICU, and that's my unit, and the MPCU, the step-down unit. So basically all of the sickest people in the state come to see me on my unit. Now that includes, uh, among other things, um, the COVID patients, 
um, mm -hmm. the unvaccinated COVID patients or those who were vaccinated but have some sort of pre-existing immunocompromised um, situation. I also see uh, those with other kinds of organ failure. We see, um, unfortunately, a great deal of liver cirrhosis. We see suicide attempts. Some of the people who are really in trouble. Um, and so um, it has been, you know, certainly from a COVID perspective, very eye-opening. Um, you know, I tell people all you want, all you have to do is take a walk around my unit, and you'll get an idea as to as to the heartbreaking cruelty that COVID is. Um, you know, there's so many people who um, did everything right, but were going through chemotherapy or had MS or something like that, and COVID is is a very cruel enemy that takes people um, who have overcome such adversity already. And mm -hmm. so providing care, um, not only to the patients um, as they transition, but also to their family members um, has been hard work, but important work. I have been given the honor not only to be that chaplain in the MICU at IU, but I also am on call at Riley Children's Hospital, mm -hmm. um, at the Trauma Center, at Methodist Hospital, which is Trauma One. All of them are very different situations. Um, but this has been such a fulfilling um, aspect of my rabbinate, being able to provide care to people of all religions and meeting them where they are um, and finding my own balance of integrity and self-worth and managing my own feelings um, through clinical pastoral education. Um, quite a difference from the congregational world Mm -hmm. um, in which feelings are not particularly in, you know, people are not enthusiastic when pastors or rabbis show real feelings. Oh, that's um, true. Yeah. Right. So in CPE and in, in chaplaincy, you know, if you get angry, it's like, this is great. You know, <laughs> let's pull this apart and let's grow from this. You know, not like you're not supposed to get angry. You're a rabbi. So it really fits with me personally better because I'm a real human being um, and things, I get upset, I get sad, I get, you know, frustrated. Um, I have inner struggles and chaplaincy and um, CPE, the goal is to help you use those as growing edges and growing pains to make you a better spiritual leader and yeah. provide care for people, which is just fabulous. It's just incredible to be nurtured and saying like, look, these are normal things, but here's how you can um, hone those to be better for other people. And I think everyone would benefit for at least from at least one unit of CPE, if not more. Um, yeah. But it's been, it's been really transformative and wonderful. This is not my first unit of CPE. Obviously I'm a resident. I did an internship, but um, as a resident, um, it's been really transformative and um, and wonderful. This might be like uh, hard to think on while you're still in the trenches of CPE <laughs> and your your residency, um, but you're talking about interacting and and caring for um, everyone who did everything right, um, and how that weighs on you. How how do you manage those emotions when you're interacting with? Um, people who just didn't get the shot and oh, how does, yeah. how does, how does that weigh into your, 
um, your, your uh, rabbinical care in those moments? That's hard. You know, that's really hard. You know, I'll, I'll tell you something that a nurse told me recently, because I asked people, you know, were you vaccinated? And the nurse told me, she said, I've stopped asking because whatever answer I get makes me upset. Mm-hmm. Right. If you didn't get vaccinated, well, then we're pissed at you. Right. For And we'll talk about that. Right. If you did, then what the heck? Like, you know, oh, we're so sad for you. On the former side. Yes, that's hard. And one of the things that um, I recently did a, you know, a thread about a tweet about is um, that, you know, anti-vaxxers, people who and, and not just like I, I don't want to label them necessarily in terms of the aggressive group of anti-vaxxers. They're simply people who are vaccine hesitant or they've gone down the wrong sure, path sure. of misinformation. I don't, I don't want to um, demonize them, but I see them day in, day out. And I see their loved one, you know, um, intubated. Um, I see them on, you know, oxygen. I see them sedated. And all I hear over and over again from the families is like, oh, he was so stubborn. Or, you know, I, you know, she, she just wouldn't get vaccinated. You know, and then the family says, well, we're going to get vaccinated now. You know, if I weren't a rabbi, I would I would sort of grab them and shake them and say, oh, it only took the death of a loved one to get vaccinated. Wow. What a great person you are. Um, But as a chaplain and a rabbi who provides care, that's hard. Right. Um, This is someone who has been purposely misinformed, Mm -hmm. who has been um, led down a terrible path and is now suffering dire, dire consequences. Um, The best thing I can do is to be with them and pray with them and, um, and really hope that they will get vaccinated. You know, I mean, what else can they do at this point? Right. They can't undo the past, but I have some, there is some anger that comes with that. There is some, because my ICUs are, you know, the, the units are, are pretty full. Mm-hmm. Um, we're short staffed. There are other people who could, could be there, um, but aren't, um, you know, I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with ECMO. I've never heard of it. <laughs> okay. ECMO is like the last ditch effort. Um, it's this big machine that, that helps you, you know, like breathe and all this, like if someone's on ECMO, you can't even see them like there's the, the machine is so big over them. Um, the hospitals across the country, because um, COVID people aren't 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 the only people who use ECMO. ECMOs, there's only so many machines and all this sort of stuff. Um, and the hospitals have have decided to just stop using it on on COVID patients because one, it it hasn't shown to like cure it just sort of prolongs and mm-hmm. two there's other people who need it right and they had to make the hard decision of like this is a, a hard to find piece of equipment it's expensive it's hard it's limited we need to only use it you know for certain things and if you're unvaccinated and you're intubated and your oxygen's at 100 percent um you're not going to get ECMO anymore because there's not much we can do for you at that point. So 
Again, those are hard conversations to have, not just from me, from doctors and nurses saying we can't do anything. You know, um, you know, people say, can you get the vaccine now? We're like, no, it's too late. Um, it's heartbreaking, but there is, you know, it's sad. It's, it's heart wrenching, but it's also extremely frustrating. Um, and there is sources of anger because of what let, these are human beings who are now suffering, um, loss and, and, um, and death, um, because of misinformation and disinformation campaigns that work. And, um, you know, we had once we had someone come in and ask for ivermectin, <laughs> and we were just like, uh, "I we don't even know what to say to that." You know, we're living in the real world, right. um, where we wear masks every day and we get vaccinated and we help people. Whatever world you're living in, this isn't it, and it's just so polarized and so different. But, um, but I think it's given me good perspective, and I think it's allowed me to teach. Um, and be loving to people and um, and grow a little bit in that way. But it's hard. You know, we see yeah. surges. It's not going away. Right. Um, and um, it's hard. It's tiring. Is what, what spiritual care is available to doctors and nurses who I am sure are at like their very last, the end of their rope? So chaplains, um, you know, people... People think that chaplains only, um, well, a lot of things <laughs> have, right. uh, people have mis misinformation about chaplains. Um, you know, so for your listeners, um, mm -hmm. one, chaplains don't just come when people are dying. We're not the angels of death. We're there we're doing our rounds on everybody. Chaplains don't have to be Christian, right? Mm -hmm. They could be chaplains of, of any faith, including me, which is a rabbi or no faith, right? And we know not only provide um, care to patients and their families, but we also provide staff care. And so when nurses and doctors are having a hard time, they come to me or I come to them. We step away for a second. Sometimes we pray together. Sometimes I just let them vent. You know, um, I also have, if, if it's been a particularly um, cruel week, um, I have what's called a tranquility cart and I bring up chocolates and teas and water and sodas and, you know, Nutri-Green bars and, mm -hmm. you know, little, little notes of affirmation just to <clears throat> let them know that they're cared for um, and that we appreciate them. I mean, nurses are, they're, they're understaffed, they're overworked. Mm -hmm. They are the strongest people I've ever seen. And, um, you know, at, I'm, I'm so lucky to work with these individuals um, who come in day in, day out and have to deal with the same thing that I'm dealing with. I mean, they deal with death. They deal with having to, they're the ones who have to extubate these people and watch them mm -hmm. die, you know? Um, so if you, if you know a nurse or if you run into a nurse, you know, they need hugs and, um, Absolutely. And candy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yes, my, you know, doctors are a little bit harder doctors. There's a bit of a wall. Um, you know, there's a quite a bit of authority there, um, and, and sort of stigma and rapport that they have to maintain. Um, but I do like to check in with them and they always do appreciate it. And, um, you know, uh, it's just, you know, they're, there, they're, they're there in a different capacity. Um, they're sort of the boss of it and they give the orders, but it's the nurses and the techs and the, 
you know, the other sort of staff who go in and execute those orders and so are on the front lines there. So um, there, there is weight on doctors. There is a great deal of stress uh, and pain in doctors. Um, and so I don't want to disregard that, but we don't see that as much. Right. That makes sense. Whew. Well, thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing there. Cause it's um, yeah. For everybody who is like, ah, this is my, my first Christmas with my family post pandemic. Uh, there are other people who are like, no, we're still definitely in the thick of it. And think again, <laughs> before you travel. Post pandemic. Post pandemic. Yeah. I mean, not there. <laughs> we're not post anything. Right. Um, you know, we're in whatever stage we are now, but we're not post anything. Um, you know, and, um, you know, God bless the people who have been wearing their masks, who have been social distancing, who have been, you know, uh, getting the vaccines and the booster. Um, you know, we're, we're extremely grateful for those little things that literally save lives um, mm -hmm. and um, fight against this sort of radical individualism that we see in America. Um, uh, it doesn't matter to me unless it affects me sort right. of thing. We're fighting hard against that. Um, as a religious person, it, that makes no sense, right? We're all about communal love and uh, communal um, justice. The idea of liberty and radical idea, you know, individualism makes no sense. Yeah. Ooh, we could go on a whole rabbit hole about vaccine equity around the world and patents and stuff, but I will reel us back from that because uh, I promise that we talk about holidays. <laughs> okay, um, let's segue. Let's do let's it. Do it. I feel like Hanukkah was early this year. Was it early this year? Um. Well, here's what I'll say. On our calendar, it was right on time. Perfect. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, the Gregorian calendar is just weird this year. Right, the Gregorian calendar was just weird this year, man. I don't know what happened. Um, yes, so um, Hanukkah came on the 29th of November, um, mm -hmm. which is relatively early per se, um, but it's been earlier. Um, really? And, um, oh, sure, yeah. Um, you know, all the leap years and calendars. Oh, my God, yeah. We've oh, had true. it before yeah. Thanksgiving or during Thanksgiving. Um you know, so yes, but it, it was sort of earlier this year, um, but it was um, it was wonderful, and there was a lot of um, you know some of the same things that we've just been talking about, right? How do we celebrate Hanukkah during a pandemic, mm -hmm. um, being together and um, or not being together? There was a lot of virtual um, and FaceTime and Zoom lightings of uh, Hanukkah menorahs and pictures and beautiful lights and all kinds of new every year you have something new to add to the expressions of holidays and so uh, this year was no different in terms of bringing light and um you know to so much darkness in the world um but most of the time i um i found myself arguing with people online about how jesus didn't celebrate hanukkah <laughs> So right. <laughs> uh, that was that was the bulk of my eight days and before. Um, and uh, that was the most memorable aspect <laughs> of my Hanukkah. Uh, 
Um, yeah. Would you explain for our listeners whether Jesus celebrated Hanukkah or sure. not, and why that's a question? <laughs> well, well, and then this the same. I feel like the same conversation happens around every Jewish uh, holiday. Yes. That's true. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So as a Jewish holiday approaches, inevitably we get the Messianics or or certain other. Um, certain denominations or sects of, of Christianity who say, we're going to celebrate this like Jesus did. And that's when we have to step in and say, uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, let's back up a minute. Um, so we'll start with Hanukkah. Um, yes, I believe it is in John 10 that um, it mentions that Jesus enters the temple during what is called the Feast of Dedication. And people have said, ah, this is this is Jesus celebrating Hanukkah. Um, well, uh, not yes and no, right? Um, what the Feast of Dedication was in the first century is different from what Hanukkah was later and now. Mm-hmm. Um, like most holidays in Judaism, They have gone through the filter of rabbinic interpretation from the Pharisees to the sages of Mishnah, Midrash, and Talmud. Um, Things have been added, taken away, reinterpreted, and now modern Judaism um, now expresses these holidays very different from um, a time when the temple stood, right? When the temple stood, um, it was sacrifice and it was, you know, um, cultic rituals and priests and that sort of stuff, all of that's gone. So yes, Jesus during the first century, there was a particular kind of observance, right? That happened with the temple, with the priests, with sacrifices and things like that. When that went away, um, after 70 CE, um, things were reinterpreted. Um, The ideas of Um, The rabbis in the Talmud um, were that basically the the rededication of the temple um, from, you know, with thanks to the Maccabees from the Seleucid Empire um, wasn't uh, religious enough, wasn't theological enough from their point of view. It was a very um, militaristic. If you read one and two Maccabees, it's very militaristic. There's very little theology. Um, in it. Um, it didn't make it into the Hebrew canon. Um, you know, it's in Greek. Um, at that point, the canon was still being put together. Um, so it didn't really fit. So um, what the rabbis then uh, did, what the sages did, was to create a theological aspect to add to Hanukkah. And that's where we get the idea of the miracle of the eight days, right? Mm. This come from a, from a story um, from the sages that, you know, there was um, only anoint- enough oil for one day um, and then it lasted for eight days, right? That's, you can't find that anywhere in the Maccabees um, because it just wasn't created in that yet. And even Jews will, you know, fight back about me about that. But um, the argument from silence here is is pretty, pretty definite. Um, if there's going to be a miracle like that, you mention it, um, <laughs> you know, that's, it's not something you sort of pass off. Um, so arguments from silence in that way are, are pretty definite. Um, so later interpretations of that then extended to the Hanukkah, the Hanukkah, the Hanukkah menorah, 
um, which which differs from the temple menorah. Um, and then later you add things from like medieval ideas and culture ideas of, okay, well, it's about oil. So let's cook things in oil. Let's have donuts and latkes, oh. um, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, the German word for dreidel, you know, is dreidel, which is the top, right? That's that legend um, then sort of was was put back into the idea of that when the Seleucids were, you know, around and they had restricted, um, you know, Jewish studying that, um, you know, I'm told that I was told this as a child, right, that um, Jews would study Torah. And then when the, you know, the the evil guards would come around, they'd hide the Torah stuff and they'd break out the dreidel and you know, hmm. be distracting. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful children's story, um, but the history of the of the dreidel is really more from the Rhineland, uh, much later. But in any case, Hanukkah, how it is now um, celebrated, is has gone through you know a thousand to two thousand years of transformation, picking up things from the sages and medieval and you know, and so it it is, you know. It is completely foreign to what Jesus would have observed during that time. And so that's why I, I tell Christians, like, it's not particularly appropriate for you to um, celebrate it this way, because that's not the way that Jesus would have celebrated it. I mean, if you want to say something about the Feast of Dedication, say, hey, John 10, Feast of Dedication. Cool. Let's remember that. Um, that's cool. That's awesome. Um when Christians start to, or Messianics start to, you know, light the candles and say, ah, the light, it was always Jesus, the light of the world, and all that sort of stuff, that's when we get the ick factor, and we're like, not only is that historically inaccurate, but it is, um, you know, culturation and, you know, all that sort of wonderful stuff. So those are the reminders um, that, that I like to really put in there. Um, and mention. I know it's hard to hear for people who like to connect Jesus to everything. I know it's hard to hear um, that, you know, one light might be different from another light. Um, mm -hmm. But from a Jewish perspective, um, the, the celebration of Hanukkah in modern Jewry is not what Jesus celebrated. And that's okay, right? Um, it's not right. what other Jews celebrated in the first century, right? Um, and, uh, and we have to sort of educate and make peace with that, that um, we are now rabbinic modern Jews who have gone through a great deal of transformation. We're no longer um, Second Temple Jews um, right. who deal with right. all of that. And, and that's, that's, I think, an important part of history for Jews and Christians alike, that the temple doesn't stand anymore. So what happened during the temple doesn't happen anymore. And that's OK, you know. Yeah. And I, I think part of the um, the challenge that we have to overcome when we talk about this kind of stuff is that um, especially like white Protestant Christians exist in the U.S., exist in this world of, well, we've always had white Protestant Christians and they've always been the dominant people. We live in this yeah. like perpetual now, right? Which is the same problem with like that we run into with critical race theory and everything. We just yes. don't really know our history at all. Correct. Um, yeah. And so reminding people that like, no, Judaism has this long history. And and I loved what you said earlier about um, 
do when we were doing like Zoom menorahs, that like there's a new thing every holiday season. As people celebrate Christmas, they're often trying to like replicate the Christmas of their childhood so that there's not a new thing every holiday season. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just a very different um, sense of living with history instead of living right. ahistorically. Uh, like that, that just really jumped out at me as you were telling all of those things. Cause there's a, there's a grand story there. Yeah. I mean, that resonates a great deal. I mean, I think we can say this across the board of religions and denominations that people like comfortability and they mm -hmm. like remembering things that they're, that they grew up with. I mean, <clears throat> I would say that like 70 to 80% of a rabbi's job in worship is explaining to people that things, you know, just because your parents did it doesn't mean it was right. Doesn't mean we do it now. doesn't mean it was always that way. Yeah. Um, it's so tiresome. Um, so much so that like I've had people during my congregational life, um, you know, I'll sing a different version of the Shema prayer and they'll get up and walk out because oh. it's not the one that they grew up with. Right. And, um, you know, and this one, this one congregant was like, you know, this is the, this is it. This is the, this is the tune, you know, that it's always been right. And I was like, I was like, I don't understand, you know, um, you think they said this, they, you think they sang this tune of the Shema's they walked up the temple steps and <laughs> like, well, this is what they did. And, you know, and during the Holocaust and stuff, you know, and, and I said, you know, this is, um, this was written by a, a guy in Vienna, you know, late 19th century, hmm. whose purpose was to change it away from traditional Jewish music. That's the one you love. But of course, they're not taught that, right? They, you know, it's right. all about comfortability of, I want to, I want to celebrate like my parents did. There's some, the idea of custom and tradition being handed down. It's extremely powerful. I'm of the other camp where give me something new to see like i grew mm -hmm. up with that great i know it give me something new give me a new challenge give me a new song give me a new interpretation expand my mind instead of doing things you know the same way don't let me get stuck you know and muddled right. in this um let me pass on a changed tradition to my children um but as you as you were saying not everybody is of that camp. Yeah. Well, and that, that's something that I ran into a lot as I was a pastor as well. And that, that was um, something that really uh, caused a lot of tension toward the end of my time being a pastor is that my congregants wanted comfort when they came to church. Like we were in very uncertain times. It was the end of 2020. Like the world was not what they wanted it to be. Uh, right. And they wanted to sing the same hymns together and weren't excited that that was not what they could do. Um, and also like, I wanted to expand their ideas of what justice and love and mercy looks like. And they were not, they were also yeah. exhausted, you know, yeah. and it's hard to do new things when you're exhausted. So hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I want to, I, that I like so many questions have been sparked in me, uh, and I will give <laughs> Ian a chance to ask things after this. Um, but you talked about, uh, the progression from the Pharisees to the sages of, I believe the Midrash to modern rabbis. Um, yeah. 
Can you uh, give us like a quick primer on uh, one, why we shouldn't compare people to Pharisees in a negative way, Oh, go ahead. Uh, but two, how we go from Pharisees to the modern rabbinate as we understand it? Oh, my. Um, boy, if there's one campaign that I continue to push, push, push on social media is that is for Christians to please stop using that word as a slur, right? Right. Um, or in in equalizing it with hypocrites, right? Um, because, and we'll go into this in detail, of course, but what a Christian is really telling another Christian by calling them a Pharisee is a Christian telling a Christian, you're acting like a Jew. Ooh, and, um, you know, when you think about it that way, don't do that, you know? <laughs> don't, Absolutely right. <laughs> don't do that. That's not, that's, that is, that is a slur that is, you know, completely inappropriate. Um, you would be, I mean, I don't know how surprised you would be. People are incredibly surprised when I point this out to them mm-hmm. and that it's offensive. And the amount of pushback that we get back is incredible. We, you know, we hear, you know, this is a biblical word. I'm like, well, it's not a biblical word. This was an actual group of people. Right. Human beings. It's right. not just a... Um, you know, a trope that is used in the Gospels. Like, these were people. Um, and they're like, well, we're not talking about all Jews. We're talking about, you know, and I'm like, you're talking about a particular denomination of Jews at the time. And they're like, well, they don't exist anymore. I'm like, well, that's true. Pharisees don't exist anymore. All modern Judaism extends from the Pharisees. Right. So, um, and that that's, you know, to the crux of the question, right, is, um, all of modern Judaism from ultra Orthodox to ultra progressive stems from Pharisaic Judaism. The Pharisees in the first century were that denomination that won out, um, and survived by, um, you know, compiling legalistic, um, and oral law, which then became Mishnah and Talmud, which then became the basis for how do we as whatever century we're in, as modern Jews, um, interpret and take on the commandments of the Torah and the Tanakh and put them into practice, right? And from the Mishnah and the Talmud, which is, you know, second century to fifth century, you have other law codes that occur, right? 16th century is Shulchan Aruch. You've got the Rambam, Maimonides in the 10th century, um, or 12th century, excuse me, you've got Rashi in the 10th century, you've got Ibn Ezra, and then you've got modern responsa. All of it builds on itself like that game of Jenga, right? Um, And so all of modern Judaism is now at the top. You can trace it down to the Pharisees, right? Which was a particular kind of Judaism. Um, and when the temple fell and the Sadducees were no longer needed because mm-hmm. the temple fell and they were priests, right? Um, and the Essenes were gone anyway. They were on their own sort of path and the Kumranites were doing their own thing. Um, the Pharisees had the burden of transforming Judaism from a temple cultic group to a diasporic, law-focused group. And so, um, 
So that's that's one thing to tell people is that when you call someone a Pharisee is a bad thing, you're insulting every Jew right now in the world for the right. last 2,000 years. Um, to say that that's bad means that all of us that came from it, you know, the children of all of that is all flawed and bad. So don't do that. The second thing, um, and, and you know, that's really important is that, yes, Jesus had, um, according to the Gospels, some issue with... Um, particular understandings of legal code, right? That did not fit his understanding of how the, how the law should be. Um, whether these stories took place or whether they were a polemic later, whatever. But the point is, is it's there. And that's what's important. So um, the fact that Jesus calls Pharisees hypocrites, um, you know, if it were anyone but Jesus, they'd be like, well, who cares, right? You can call us a hypocrite, we disagree. As you know, Jesus sort of carries a great deal of weight in Christianity. Um, right. And so his, yeah, his words, um, you know, are extremely powerful um, and polemical. Um, and so um, even today in 2021, there are particular Christians who will say, ah, okay, I equalize Pharisees and hypocrites or people who are um, who don't see the spirit and love through the law, who are cold-hearted, legalistic, or whatever it is, um, which the Pharisees were not, which modern Jews are not, right? Um, and But this was a view through the gospel writer, right, for, for all kinds of historical important reasons. To break that apart and say, look, what you're really doing when you're saying, you know, we shouldn't be Pharisees is you're saying we shouldn't be Jews. Um, and the truth is, you're not Jews. Um, and that's, we've known that for a long time. Right. Um, and there's nothing you can do besides converting to Judaism to make you Jews. Um, being hypocritical doesn't mean you're Jewish. Um, and so... The, the amount of pushback that we get shows how ingrained it is and how important that slur is from a religious point of view. I mean, people will argue tooth and nail with me, you know, um, this is ours, you know, we're not, we don't mean this, you know, this is what we mean. And it takes a great deal of work and patience to explain to people, um, you know, I recently posted and I said, I said, look, let's put this in a 2021 perspective. Okay. Um, let's say um, you, you equate um, the N word with a particular kind of activity of people. You know, you're not talking about all black people. You're talking about what you believe the N word represents about a certain group within black people. Mm -hmm. Do you think that a black person would say, I understand, sure, feel free and use that? Right. Of course not. What, are you crazy? No, don't, you're not allowed to do that. And so um, even if Jews use the word Pharisees, you can't use it, you know. Um, right. You know, they're, they're, it's hard to impress upon people how offensive it is to hear, you know, um, to be a Jew is to be a hypocrite, legalistic, unloving, cold, 
and we strive not to be that person. Um, it's incredibly offensive. Um, it dehumanizes and disregards modern Jews and first century Jews in the 2000 years in between. Um, and so that is a, that is a sort of crusade, uh, that I've been on for lack of a better word, um, to try and change that behavior. Um, and I know, again, as you said, like people are comfortable with stuff, right? Mm -hmm. You see people pushing back about sports teams names being changed and, you know, um, syrup bottles being changed and they're right. outraged because they're used to it. But you know what? It's offensive. You know, yeah. it's, you can't use those words um, and trust the people who are telling you that it's offensive. And that's really what it is, right? Is yeah. you may not think it's offensive, but if someone comes to you and tells you from that particular group, this is offensive, that should be the end of the story. Whether that's right. African Americans, whether that's Native Americans, whether that's Jews or whatever it is, if they tell you, we've asked you please to stop using this as a slur, it's insulting to us, the answer should just be done. Yeah. You know. It's that one, it's once you know better, do better, right? And exactly. exactly. Now you know, right? The more you know, <laughs> and you'll stop using it. Right? We've had to go through that with all kinds of slurs that people have used, right, throughout the throughout the ages, including the N-word and right. you know, these sort yeah. of things that have been ingrained in English um that were just because, and, and, you know, when people say, well, it was okay then. No, it wasn't okay then. Just nobody told exactly. you it wasn't okay then. Now we're really telling you it's not okay then. And so that's hard. I understand that's hard, certainly for um, a particular segment of the American population. But it's hard work that people need to do. And that the Pharisees thing is, is along the lines of that within that group. So what can we do other than calling out other Christians and explaining this to other Christians so that you're not the person having to do it all the time? Um, what can pastors do either in Bible studies or in sermons when we are engaging with these texts where Jesus talks about the Pharisees? How yeah. should we, what work should we do to help prevent people from using it the way they're currently using it? It's a great question. And pastors have, uh, have so much power in that way. And I, you know, so the first thing you mentioned is really, um, I don't want to dismiss it because it is so important, and that is um, Christians standing up and fighting the fight so that Jews don't have to, right? Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we fight the fight, but um, we'd sure like some backup for people in front of us who say, you know, you don't have to fight this battle alone. Um, and so that's really important. Um, the second thing is, look, in the New Testament and in the Hebrew Bible, you're going to come up on verses that make you uncomfortable, mm. verses that are problematic, right? I can't stand having to read, um, you know, some of the commandments about women, about slavery, about genocide. Um, we have to um, read them and we have to face them head on. Um, and so when you encounter a New Testament, uh, you know, group of verses that talks, you know, negatively about first century Jews or, um, you know, whether it be 
um, hypocrites or synagogue of Satan or the Jews, the way that John uses it um, as a pejorative, um, you know, or the blood curse of, of during the passion narrative. Um, you know, I know that's hard because, um, you know, there it is written in the New Testament. Um, but I think it, it is just as it is my responsibility as a rabbi to say, look, um, we have to discuss audience. We have to discuss historical distance. We have to talk different morality. I know that's tough, um, but that's not okay. And here are the ramifications as to why that's not okay. And here's why we do it different. Here's why we look at this differently now. So yeah. we don't look at the, you know, the, um, his blood be on us and our children um, anymore as we should go out and murder Jews, you know, um, and send them to hell. We don't do that anymore. Um, that's been done. We're not going to do that anymore. Um, right. You know, when Jesus is talk talking about, um, you know, Pharisees are hypocrites, you can say, well, this is a perspective of Jesus' view of the interpretation of the law versus a particular group, small group of Pharisees in this story. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and they're disagreeing. Right. Um, that doesn't mean all Christians and it doesn't mean all Jews. Right. It means like read it as a on the surface there. It's Jesus talking to a group of people and saying, I disagree with you. There's lots to talk about in terms of disagreements um, yeah. and hypocrisy. Right. And, you know, what what is what are the Pharisees struggling with? in the things that Jesus is doing, which broke up, broke what their understanding of Jewish law was at the time and why that was difficult. These are great things to talk about compassionately without ever mentioning, you know, that we're right and the Jews are wrong and they're terrible people. <laughs> you know, like, right, yeah. um, there's lots to talk about in there. And so, um, I love to hear those interpretations and those challenges because those are conversations that we right. can have and say, oh, here's the first time, you know, here's what the Pharisees were feeling. Um, this is why this was weird to them. Um, you can sort of understand that. And here's why Jesus got so upset with them, because this is Jesus's perspective. That's a that's a conversation, you know, um, uh, a theological debate that's respectful, which are which are always, always fun, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and, and OK, so here's a. Sorry, and I know I said that Ian could talk, but yeah, where's gonna... Ian? <laughs> <laughs> I, that's a great question, Rabbi. <laughs> where's Ian? I need an Ian question. <clears throat> the only thing I would add to that, because um, I've uh, one of the, the the great things I've taken from uh, one of Rabbi Danya's threads has been talking about the Pharisee question. Um, uh, it gets back to that same thing we're talking about. Uh, Judaism is internally diverse, just like every religion is internally diverse. And even in the first century, Judaism was internally diverse. And, um, you know, there were Pharisees who, you know, were saying the same things that Jesus were saying. Love your, like, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Rab, uh, I, she talks about how um, Hillel is one of the, uh, Hillel's interpretation being one of the ones that like won out in the end. Um, right. But Hillel being, I, I'm not entirely sure of um, his uh, timeline and where that all falls into place. Yeah. But um, <laughs> lifting up the fact that uh, 
pointing out that the Pharisees that Jesus was uh, purportedly the gospel the gospels uh, report him interacting with um, right. was a group of Pharisees, a, a particular group of people, and they're not representative of Judaism in the first century, and they're certainly not representative of Judaism in the twenty first century. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and I think we can expand that um, to. Um, you know, when people say, why did the Jews kill Jesus or something like that? Like, really important to remember is that, first of all, most Jews at that time did not live in in that, that land, in Judea, right? right. Um, most did not live where Jesus was. Um, and the most who even lived in that had never met Jesus, right? Um, Jesus had a three-year ministry in a very particular place with a very particular group of people. Right. Very small circle. Right. The rest of us never heard of him. Um, and so um, while, yes, obviously, you know, the collective blame and, and all of that is is horrible and, and sort of ridiculous. If we can take that argument and sort of minimize it to what we're talking about here, it's in the same way. Right. And the fact that this, you know, um, Jews are uh, notorious for two Jews, three opinions. I mean, there, these Pharisees were a group of Jews. I don't even think they agreed with each other, right? Um, this is Jesus' perspective about this group. And let me tell you, there were five other groups of Pharisees who disagreed with them and disagreed with each other, right? Um, we are we are a questioning, arguing, diverse um, faith, and the Pharisaic view that is represented in the gospel is not a monolith for first century Judaism. And again, that's hard to see because Judy, you know, my poor Christian friends only really get to learn about Judaism through the lens of the New Testament, which is extremely skewed, extremely limited, um, not the greatest view. It's, it's got anti-Judaism kind of baked into it. it baked into it, right. Anti-Judaism is, is extremely into it. Um, and so, of course, that and it, that's its own tower of Jenga, where if that's what that is, then we think about Jews this way, right? And we just have to remove that underlying saying and say, what if this isn't quite, you know, um, and see what happens to the tower and it starts to shake. And when it starts to shake, people react in two ways. They get excited. Cool. Let's build a new one. Or... No, this is not acceptable. Um, you know, stop making my tower shake. So, um, yes, hundred percent there. Um, um, and uh, and I know Rabbi Danya as a colleague. Um, she and I write very similar things. Um, so if you like her threads, you'll like mine too. <laughs> oh, I love your threads as well. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Tell I mean, people they comment on my threads and they're like, "Hey, Danya did one too." I was like, "Yeah, I know." Like you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we do similar stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nice to have, um, Twitter rabbis, like as somebody who is probably not going to find a rabbi in the wild near me, having yes. Twitter rabbis that I can <laughs> learn from. I love it. Um, it, it, yeah. So this is, this is something that I was going to ask that is a very quick thing. It's not like an anti-Semitic trope to say that like, Jewish people have a lot of arguments about big ideas theologically and have a lot of different opinions and discussions. Like that's kind of baked in, right? There's, there's uh, nothing more true than that. I mean, <laughs> that, 
that is a very accurate way to say, look, um, you can't pin down Jews, whether that's from a denominational point of view, interdenominational, within a denomination. Um, and the, the proof of that is, is, is if you've ever looked into the Mishnah or the Talmud, it's basically rabbis disagreeing with each other in writing, you know, um, and that's how we learn with majority opinions and minority opinions and why this, you know, and so the argument is the ritual that takes meaning, right? Not the answer, right? The answer is the majority opinion for now. We retain and respect the minority opinion because that might think circumstances might change where the minority opinion might become the majority opinion again. Um, we don't want to dismiss things outright. Um, and that is how Jews argue is say like, you know, this is what works in my perspective now here. Um, and here's why we disagree with that rabbi's perspective. Um, and whether that be a fifth century Talmudic rabbi or a rabbi today who writes a response um, and says, this is my view on abortion or gay marriage or, you know, um, interfaith marriage or whatever it is tracing you and using the texts in the same way that they always did and someone to say um, I agree with this but not this and this is how we see this halakhically in Jewish law and this is how we you know um, and you've missed this point and I think you're doing you're pulling too much on this interpretation because there's this I mean that's the ritual that's the journey so no certainly not an anti-semitic trope um, that is how I wish Christians saw Jews mm. um, so that when someone says, what does Judaism say about something? That's an impossible question to answer. Um, right. Which Judaism? Where? When? Who? Um, you know, I can get sit down. I've got, you got three hours, you know. Um, <laughs> and it's hard, but that's the that's the beauty of, of Judaism. Which, by the way, I understand is different from certain denominations and sects of Christianity. Where this is the law and this is what it says and that's it. Right. Um, other denominations aren't like that, but um, some of the loud ones certainly are. Um, right. And so that's where that disconnect happens with how we discuss our text, because for them, the text means this and that's the end of the story. It's never the end of the story for Jews. Like, well, you know, that's what you think. But this guy said this and that means this. And this guy said, that. you know, what about this? How could you say that? You know, that's why we argue into the night. I mean, and it's the best part. Um, you know, we are, and I say this over and over, this is the main thing that I teach is that Jews are first and foremost scholars. Like mm. you have to research and research and research. If you want to answer that question, you've got thousands of years of texts and volumes and volumes of, of views. Um, you can get, you get, you can drown in the sea of it. Um, yeah. And uh, we never want to miss that opportunity. So when someone says, this is just what it means, we're very confused. Um, right. You know, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, so last week on the podcast, we talked about uh, who is theology for from like a very Christian perspective, knowing that like often Christian theology is in search of like the one truth that will make sense to all of us. We, we kind of have that, that fixation. Uh, so let me put that question to you, like from a, from a Jewish perspective, who is theology for, and like, what's the point of theology? Yeah. Um, 
So I'll tell you that the two words that I hate in religion um, are truth with the capital T and faith with the capital F. Ooh. Um, truth with a capital T does not exist in Judaism. Um, there, we, you will always hear, this is what we believe, hmm. not this is what is so, right? Um, this is what we believe. This is what we, we understand, not this is what we know right um we have learned to understand things and believe things a certain way but we will never be the person to say this is the truth with a capital t and we know it for sure and you're wrong now there are ultra orthodox jews who might dabble in that a little um because their feelings are so strong about it but even in that, it's different from what you would hear from the truth with the capital T within theology and certain denominations of Christianity. The reason why faith bothers me so much is because faith is um, when when I when I am interacting with my Christian colleagues and I ask them a hard question, and their answer is faith that's not the answer that's a placeholder that protects you from diving into things that might make you uncomfortable uh, could, and shake your tower could you give an example of like what a, what one of these hard questions might be sure yeah the the hard question that you know any any christian on the street who's pulling me over and saying blah blah, blah my my question that i asked them is i said let me ask you a question um, Jesus is supposed to be part of the Davidic line of Messianic, you know, um, the Messianic line. Um, it traces it down to Joseph, his father, from the Davidic line, um, except Joseph, according to Christianity, is not Jesus's father. So how can Jesus be part of the Messianic timeline if Joseph is not part of it? Now, the other part is that he's the son of God, so that's sort of I understand the weight. However, one thing does not match with the other. The answer I get nine times out of ten is faith. Um, boring. Let's dive into it. Let like this is an established huge aspect of Christianity. Right. Bring it on. You know. Um, but all I get is you got to have faith. We don't know. That to me is something that has been taught to them to pare it back so that they don't question. Hmm. Um, and it's a misuse of what the beauty of faith can be. Right. And mm -hmm. so that's why the word is very loaded for me in that way. And so I know that was just an aspect of your question, but, um, but that hopefully gives you a little bit of perspective of where I am on that. So who yeah. is theology for is a, is a, a fascinating question. I, I've never been asked it before. Um, so I'm trying to pull together an answer. Mm. Um, different theologies exist within Judaism. Um, mm. You know, there is secular Judaism, there's humanistic Judaism, there's different views of God. The biblical God is very different from the medieval God, who's very different from the modern God, right? Is God um, omnipresent or not? Is God incorporeal or not? Is God um, omnipotent, omniscient? all morally good or not depends who you ask um 
And so theology can be for everybody um, who, who would like it. Um, other people have, have uh, a great deal of issue with theology. I don't think it's an issue with theology. I think it's an issue with organized religion and what's done with that theology, but theology right. nonetheless. Um, and so theology doesn't have to be for them. Um, some people are content being culturally secular Jewish, um, and that is perfectly fine. For those who wish to explore theology, it's a long, complicated road in which it's a 90-year curriculum. Um, hmm. You know, well, how you felt about God and theology 10 years ago, 20 years ago, um, let me teach you some things that'll blow your mind, and now you're going to think about other things. Or what's going on in your life right now might change your theology and view of God. And that's normal and okay. You may turn your back on God. You may stop believing in God for a while. You may fully embrace God. You may have an, a deep relationship with God. Your theology is for you. Um, my job as a rabbi is to help you with precedent, is help you with what does Judaism say? Um, what are some texts to help you um confirm that you're not the first person to have this kind of theology and challenge saying this person had it but this person added this what does that do for you um and that exploration is what um judaism is how we how we are israel how we wrestle with god we wrestle with theology that is our eternal um task and so um any particular Jew that you see on the street is wrestling with theology and wrestling with God in their own way and have their own story to tell. Yeah, that's great. That's, um, oh gosh, it makes me like the, I, as somebody who grew up quasi evangelical where like it was capital T truth and you did need to have faith and, uh, you could learn, but you couldn't question. This is one of those things that like, uh, it's just so freeing. It just makes my soul feel happy. <laughs> so I right. love to hear it. <laughs> you could you could question, but there is one answer to that question. Right. 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 And and here's what I'll say. Um, Judaism is not immune to that sort, right? I mean, the reason why things like the Midrash are written um, is so that the particular answers are given to you before you can even answer the question, right? Midrash is written... So when you hear in Genesis, let us create man in our image, you go to the Midrash and they say, well, that's the royal we, or God's talking to the angels, or God's, you know, there's, instead of asking, what the heck's going on? I thought there was one God, like, let, you know, um, we are not immune to that, right? The, the, the answers so that you don't ask the question are there, except that there's multiple answers, right? Ah. Um, you know, there's never just one. There's multiple answers, and not all of them are right. Um, not all of them are agreed upon, um, or you pick one, you know. So that's where it's a little bit different, but but that is a symptom within, um, you know, certainly Talmudic uh, Judaism is um, you don't need to ask the question. The rabbis already have the answer for you, and if we teach you the answer, you won't ask the question. Um, that is not modern Judaism, not progressive Judaism, um, mm. but that is certain aspects of Judaism, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I want to wrap up with a question about like in, uh, in the winter season, but also like 
throughout the year, how can Christians be better allies to Jewish people? Uh, but before I ask that question that I'm sure will will take us to uh, an astounding ending, Ian, do you have a question you want to throw in? <laughs> I mean, I have a question that might be more of a mini-sode question Ooh, um, okay. that it might get further into. So maybe it's better to ask uh, talk about your question first. But the the question that I have, since you brought up Genesis, um, recognizing that Christians and, and, and Jews um, share a chunk of texts and have a special relationship with a chunk of texts that um, are the same texts, but we approach them very differently. Um, and so I, I, I would love to hear from, a, from your perspective, um, how, how should Christians approach the Tanakh, the chunk of books that, that we historically call the Old Testament? But that might be a far longer answer. I love how I love your optimism that you think it's a mini episode. That's that's <laughs> not that's an episode, brother. Um, yes, the difference from the Tanakh and the Old Testament and all this sort of stuff is its own episode. And bring it on. Um, that is definitely part of my book, and definitely part of the things I teach. So hmm. I'm here. You tell me when you want to talk about it. Okay. Um, so yes, great question. Definitely an episode, at least. At least okay. yeah. Let's do um yeah, let's do allyship, which I think we could wrap up this part of the episode with. And then okay. I'm uh, if we're around for a mini sode, we can do half an hour on uh on the Tanakh. <laughs> we'll do our best. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Or or I I I might have a, another question for that might be a 30 minute thing. Okay. Perfect. Great. Love it. That might that uh, might uh, tease okay. that that new full episode that's coming up. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Listen, I'm here for it. Bring it on. Um, so allyship is is a is a wonderful question and um, so important and so meaningful to Jews is that when Christians ask wholeheartedly, how can we be allies? Um, considering all of the PTSD and everything we've been through with um, with Christians over the years, um, it's uh, overwhelmingly wonderful to hear. So, um, you know, uh, even just asking will brighten a, a Jewish person's day. <laughs> um, so, uh, but it's a great question, right? Um, and we can, we, there are certain prongs to it, right? Today we're focusing on through holiday worship, right? Um, through holiday observance, how can Christians be um, allies? So let's take that from, from two point of views. One, when Christian holidays come around, Christians can be allies to Jews by doing a few things. One, recognize that on Christian holidays, um, it was not uncommon to go out and murder Jews on Christian mm -hmm. holidays. Easter was a big, you know, Good Friday was a terrible, terrible day for us. Um, the Christmas holiday season was a terrible time for us. So there is a little bit of PTSD when those holidays come around in terms of our safety living in an assimilated Christian world. The second thing is we recognize as a minority that we live in a Christianized country, um, in a Christianized world, or depending on the Christianized West anyway. Um, and, um, you know, to, as a Christian, to fight 
against ideas of um, Western Christian oppression. And I want to, I, I need to, of course, acknowledge the fact that in the East and in certain aspects of the world, Christians are oppressed and discriminated against and in danger. Um, and I want to acknowledge that and, um, you know, express that understanding. Um, however, if we're talking about American Christianity, um, American Christians are not oppressed, right. um, are not being, their rights are not being taken away. They are not being shipped away or forcibly converted or whatever it is of some of the horrible things that are occurring on the other side of the world. And so to re remind each other um, that there is no such thing as a war on Christmas, all you have to do is drive through Times Square um, and drive through any neighborhood and recognize that there's no such thing. Nobody's right. stopping you from celebrating this highly acculturated, assimilated, huge American holiday where you literally get the day off for mm -hmm. it. Um, you know, um, there's there's very little oppression there. Um, that being said, and I think it's, it's wonderful to be in that position and it's wonderful that you get to see that beauty. Um, listen, Christmas is a beautiful holiday. It's bright, it's colorful, it's loving. Um, that there are other religions here, including Judaism, um, that uh, do not celebrate it, um, that may feel in certain situations uncomfortable or left out if the group that is being spoken to is diverse, but through a Christian through Christianese or, or, you know, talking about Christmas break or using things like that. Um, and I think that that is, again, we've seen how people react to that one way or the other, right? Um, you know, the whole, um, you know, Tucker Carlson Trumpism idea that we can say Merry Christmas again um, is a very radical reaction to the idea of, you know, not everybody celebrates Christmas and the best respectful thing that you can do to anyone, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, secular atheist, is to say happy holidays um, because Christianity is celebrating one of those holidays. Jews are celebrating one of those holidays. Muslims are celebrating one of those holidays. You know, um, that does not mean that we are um, removing your right to say Merry Christmas Right. You can say that to each other, just like I would not tell you Happy Hanukkah. You don't celebrate Hanukkah. <laughs> I'd tell you Merry Christmas. Um, you can tell us Happy Hanukkah um, or all of us. If I don't know you and I don't want to insult you, I don't want to um, offend you. Say have a great holiday season or happy holidays or whatever. Um, and that is sort of an extreme but important reminder of a larger issue of just saying that when you are speaking, um, when a majority is speaking to a diverse community, to remember that there are minorities and to make sure that they're not accidentally excluded or isolated. And I want to say that, um, and I write about this in my book, that this is, a, this is an accidental landmine that Christians stand, um, step on. This is not malicious. Right. This is not an intent to isolate or exclude. It is simply part of Christianese and Christian culture. Right. Um, 
And so even though it is not malicious and even though the intent is good, perception is reality. And so you may inadvertently be stepping on a landmine and distance yourself from an ally or from, from a friend or for someone who needs to feel included. And mm -hmm. as a Christian, that goes against everything that you're supposed to do, right? <laughs> you're supposed to include, you're supposed to love everyone, you're supposed to, right? Um, so I, I want to express that, that I don't want my Christian friends who do go around spreading love and acceptance and, you know, and all the wonderful aspects that are within Christianity to accidentally um, step on that landmine and do the opposite of what they're trying to do. And here's a way that you can make sure that you are following your own theology and your own wonderful practices um, by keeping in mind, um, you know, that Jesus came to spread love to everybody. Um, here's how I'm going to spread love to you. I'm going to recognize you that you may not be Christian and happy holidays. Enjoy it. Wonderful. Like I'm a Christian. I'm going to celebrate Christmas. You're whoever you are and you're going to celebrate that. Um, and just keeping that in the back of your head, I think can be so powerful in terms of what you say, how you act, whatever. And I think it matches better with the true intention of what is supposed to be in this, in this season. Um, and, and again, I, I, re, I emphasize over and over again, um, I don't think it's malicious. I don't think Christians are going around saying, you know, unless you're Tucker Carlson, I don't think you're, you're going around saying, I'm going to say Merry Christmas because, um, you know, and I need to say all holidays matter to him or whatever. You know, I mean, I don't, that's, that's ridiculous, right? I think um, it's just to be an ally um, means to take the goodness that's in your religion, which is there, and spread it a different way than you would spread it to a Christian. Um, mm. Christian to Christian love is very different from Christian to non-Christian love. And I think that's that's just an important reminder of, you know, um, I don't want you to get lost in that. I don't want you to make that mistake because it's not who you are. Um, mm. And I don't want you to lose friends or feel that you're not an ally when you're trying to be. Um, in that way. So if that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, a good word to end on for this episode. So Rabbi Mike, thank you again so much for being here for this. This has been fantastic. Uh, we'll make sure that we plug your book and your other podcasts down in the description oh, for people to, to find. So yeah, always exciting. Thank you so much. This is yeah. so much fun. And like I said, well, I know you have other guests and other things to talk about, but I could be on every episode and be happy. So I love your, I love the podcast. Um, I love being involved and I'm, I'm so grateful um, that you invite me to come speak and, um, and for us to have these wonderful, really, really helpful conversations that others can hear. So yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Ian, you want to sign us off? Sure. Friends, this has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Joe, Ian, and Rabbi Mike, and we will talk to you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples podcast network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schoenwolf, performed by Joe Schoenwolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. 
Email us at wtheckisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptive disciples, on Twitter at wthisapastor, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash wthiap, where you can get access to pillow talk, sign cards, episode suggestions, and so much more. Thanks for listening, and happy holidays, friends! It does make more sense, because we don't see anybody next time. <laughs> <laughs>